Good morning, everybody. Good morning, everybody. <laughs> Good to see you there. Uh, we have two of the greatest passages in the whole of the scriptures to read this morning, one from the Old Testament and one from the New. And you can see them there, Isaiah 53, starting at the fourth verse, and then later on, Revelation chapter 5. I want to tell you a little story before we go any further, and that's about Isaiah 53. When I was a small boy, we lived at one end of a road. My father worked at the other. Halfway along was the school. So my father rode his bicycle to school. Sorry, he rode his bicycle to work, and he took me to school, and we used to call it donkeying. Some people call it dinking on the bar. He'd made a little seat. He had footrests, and so I had a ride to school every day. Well, that meant I was a captive audience. And Dad must have been learning the words of Isaiah 53 at some stage because at one period in my life, he started teaching it to me as we rode along on the bike. So I didn't have much option. I listened, I learned, I heard, and I had to repeat those words. I don't think I could repeat that whole chapter now. And, of course, we learned it in the authorised version. But it's, it's left its mark. And so I thank God for a godly father. And mother. Now let's read chapter 53 of Isaiah and verse 4. Surely he took up, <clears throat> sorry, surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of, of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt, guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Just excuse me a moment.
That's better. Now we'll turn to the New Testament, to Revelation chapter 5. Now we go to heaven as we read this passage. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the centre of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honour and glory and power for ever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Well, today we continue our pop-up series, this series that just comes up at different times in the year where we see some of the key moments in the story of the Bible, moments that you've got to understand if you're going to understand the way the Bible works, the way it fits together. And today's pop-up moment, Jesus' death and resurrection, is one that's just pretty well known when you think about it. Pretty much anyone who knows anything about Christianity will be able to tell you Jesus died on a cross. Pretty much any kid who's been within a five-kilometer radius of a Sunday school will be able to tell you that the answer to every question is that Jesus died for my sins. We all know this pop-up moment is critical to the Bible's story. 
Our challenge is not knowing it. Our challenge is getting the full significance of it, feeling the full weight of everything it means. Because the more fully we understand Jesus' death and resurrection, the more impact it will have on how we live now. Today's pop-up moment is so big, not just because it reveals the, the heart of Christianity, but because it reveals to us the very heart of God himself. And what it reveals is that God says no. God says no to sin. If you look at the story of the Bible, one of the, the clearest repeated themes that we've seen so far is the sinfulness of humans. Adam sins, then humanity descends ever deeper into sin. God's chosen and loved people sin. David, all the kings and all the people sin right up until the exile. Sin is, is such a strong theme in the Bible. But it's a theme and a, a word that's kind of lost its meaning in Australian culture. And I reckon it's even lost its meaning a little bit in Christian culture. In decades and centuries gone by, we would have started our service today and every service that we had with a confession. But we just don't do that anymore. Most people think that sin is an outdated idea that people use to control other people. Most people believe that our, our modern way of thinking has set us free from the idea of sin so that instead of beating ourselves up and, and feeling guilty, we can actually enjoy things. So you hear people say things like this, you know, if there is a God, surely he wants us to enjoy life rather than worrying about sin. And then in our culture, if we do talk about sin, usually what we mean is something that's a little bit naughty or something that's a little bit self-indulgent. So someone is being sinful when they say something just a little bit mean about someone or if they tell a naughty joke or if someone eats two magnum egos in a row, you know, that's sinful. But if we're talking about ISIS, we wouldn't even consider using the word sinful, would we? We would use the word evil. Everyone, Christians, atheists, even most Muslims will agree that the right word to describe what's happened in Paris is evil. So when we read the word sin in the Bible, we, we probably need to remind ourselves that what we're talking about when we come across this concept is evil. But even if we do use the word evil instead of sin, it still doesn't sit completely comfortably with our culture, does it? Because we find it hard in Australia to agree on what exactly is evil. Who gets to decide in the end whether something's evil or not? Is it the individual? Is it the majority? Or the government? We have these two competing stories in our culture. One says that some things are clearly evil. We, we all know it. We all feel it. But the other story actually contradicts the first one because it says nobody should be able to tell another person what they can and can't do there's no absolute right or wrong it's fine for you to have your morals just don't push them on me 
these two stories in our culture conflict. Real evil doesn't fit with no absolutes. The way we usually make it work in our society is that we add a couple of words. We say, don't push your morals on me. It's fine for you to have them. And then we add, as long as they don't hurt anyone. But that doesn't resolve the problem. Because we're still left with the question, who gets to decide what hurting another person looks like? And so who in the end, when it comes down to it, gets to decide what's right and what's wrong? And who gets to push that understanding on other people? Well, God says, it's Him. He's always said it. But in this pop-up moment today, He says it louder and clearer than ever. In the book of Revelation, John sees a a vision of God ruling over creation. Don just read us part of it. But just before the bit that we read, in Revelation 4.8, John saw all creation bowing down to God and saying this. You can see the words up on the screen. They say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. There's no stronger way to say that God is completely free from evil. There's no stronger way to say that God has the absolute right to tell us what's right and what's wrong. Just in case we're in any doubt, in Revelation 4.11, John hears them say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power, for you created all things. God made everything. So he gets to decide what's right and what's wrong. And here we read that what's right is that God is worthy of receiving our best. It's right that we should honour Him completely. It's right that He should be given complete power over our lives. How do you feel about that? Our default human reaction is actually to revolt against this idea. We want to give our best to whatever we choose to give it to. Our default is to want to reject God's claim to absolute power. And this, that's what the Bible means when it talks about sin. It's a personal attack on God's authority. It's our choice to give what belongs to God to something or someone else. Sin is choosing other things over God. Now, God does want us to enjoy life. And He says it's not Him who's repressing us. We're doing it to ourselves when we reject Him. When you think about it, every time we choose selfishness or greed or arrogance or indifference, we're really saying yes to the mess in this world. Whenever we choose to honour something else over God, we're choosing to contribute to the mess in this world. Whether we realise it or not, we're giving it our endorsement. And this is universal amongst humans. That's what we've seen as we've worked our way through the Old Testament story. 
Who has actually stood up against the tide and said no to sin in what we've seen? Some resist for a while, but in the end they're all swept away by it. None of them honour God like they should. Every single person in the Old Testament story so far has failed to be different. We see this in our reading in Revelation. Look at verse 1 there. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? Now this is picture language like so much of the book of Revelation, but the scroll in God's hand stands for his plan for his creation. Who is actually worthy of unrolling God's plan? for the world well we see the answer in verse 3 but no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it i wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside no one it looks like the entire story to this point has just been in vain God's plan for us can never be rolled out because no one's up to the task. And John weeps for this tragedy. I reckon we don't necessarily see our rejection of God as a tragedy. In fact, I wonder if we think that God's problem with us is really His problem. You know, why can't God just accept us for who we are? He has too high an expectation. Just because he's perfect and can't tolerate evil, why should he expect us to be perfect? It's kind of ironic that we judge God for having such a high standard of judgment. And the reality, of course, is that we expect perfection from people in certain situations certain situations ourselves let me give you just one silly example we expect truck drivers to be perfect when it comes to not sleeping on the job don't we i mean we're not happy for a truck driver to stay awake just 99 percent of the time on the job we expect 100 percent, and understandably in an eight-hour shift 99% means that a truck driver only sleeps 4.8 minutes. I don't know about you, but I'm not happy with that. I'm not even happy for him to stay awake 99.9% of the time on the job. That's still 30 seconds of sleeping. A lot can happen in 30 seconds. I want perfection. Well, that's a silly example, but it shows you that in some areas, perfection is needed. God expects perfection from us and he has every right to. And the fact that we're happy to tolerate the mess in our own lives, well, in the end, it just shows that God is right to be angry with us. Back in the book of Revelation, someone says to John in verse 5, Don't weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah the root of David, has triumphed. He's able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Of all the key moments in the Bible, this is the greatest. 
This is the turning point in the history of the world. Finally, someone's been found who can roll out God's plans. Someone who's worthy. Someone who can stand up against the tide. A hero. Someone like a lion. So John turns his head looking for this strong, victorious lion. And what does he see in verse 6? Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. Do you get the significance of this? Do you feel the full weight of what it means? A slain lamb, it's not a nice image. I mean, I remember one time walking around, I think I've told you this before, on a friend's farm when he had sick sheep that he had to put down. Watching him cut their throats is confronting. We might think that sin doesn't really matter. We might think that God's overly sensitive. But he thinks it's this serious. That heaven's hero, this lion, is prepared to become a lamb and be slain. God says no to the mess we've made of this world. But he does it in the most remarkable, surprising way. He says it in the death of Jesus, his own son. When God says no, he's not like a, a cranky schoolteacher. He's not, he's not being a killjoy. When God says no, he's saying, I'm not going to let evil destroy you. I'm not going to let the mess that you've allowed into the world be the end of you. I'm going to overcome it no matter what it costs me. See, God's no is like a parent with a drug-addicted child who tells them that their choices are killing them, who tells them that they can't live like this and keep living at home. But when the drug dealer comes to the door looking for their kid because they can't pay the debt, he steps in and faces the dealer himself. The significance of this slain lamb there at the throne, is that Jesus would prefer to be slaughtered himself than to let us face what we deserve and be lost to him forever. We did this to him. The slain lamb. That's us that's done that. Every time we say yes to the mess in this world, we say yes to that image. In all the other pop-up moments that we've seen, there have been so many shadows of this moment of the cross, so many indicators that Jesus would one day take our penalty, be our substitute and reconcile us to God. Right even in the garden from the hint that a man would come and crush the serpent's head, from the temple where a lamb was sacrificed for the sin of the people, to David the suffering Christ, to Israel needing to die and rise again. The cross of Jesus is so remarkable and so surprising because God says no to our rejection of him, but he does it in such a way that he can say yes to us. And here we move on to Jesus' resurrection because in Jesus' resurrection, we see God's yes to the world he's made. God doesn't give up on this world. He doesn't destroy it and start again. 
Instead, he rescues it. If Jesus' death is all about God saying no to the mess we've made of this, of this world, Jesus coming back to life is all about God saying yes to how he originally made the world to be. Jesus comes back to life still as a human to lead humanity in a new beginning. Because of what Jesus has done, he's able to take the scroll from God's hand. He's made it possible for God's purposes for this world to unfold. And now he lives to unfold those purposes for the world. As the slain lamb takes the scroll from God's hand, John sees all creation bow down before him. And finally, they're able to sing a new song. The story is changed forever. And they sing in verse 9, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. God doesn't get rid of us and start again. God redeems us. In Jesus, God the Son purchases us, purchases us with his own blood and invites us to be a part of his kingdom. Well, at each of these pop-up moments, we've asked the question, what does this mean for us now? And in this particular pop-up moment, we could talk on and on forever and still not have explored all the details of what it means. But I want to just very briefly look at two things. When we see Jesus' death and resurrection, it makes us ask ourselves the most important question that we'll ever ask. Is Jesus my representative? Now, I've said today that Jesus' death is about him stepping in and taking our place. But if we're not happy to throw in our lot with Jesus, he's not going to force us. He's only the representative, the substitute of those who fully give him their allegiance. And we might not like that God has a problem with us. We might not like that he requires that we give him all glory, all honour, all power. But that doesn't change that God's never going to be happy to tolerate less than perfection. He knows that our rejection of him is the doorway through which the mess in this world entered. Now, he's dealt with it in Jesus, but either we give him our complete allegiance to the one who was slain in our place, or we face God's anger on our own. Is Jesus your representative? The second thing, though, is if your allegiance is already with Jesus. Do you see what this means for us now? If we got the full significance of Jesus' death and resurrection, if, if we felt the full weight of everything it means, we'd be done with sin. We'd be done with saying yes to the mess in this world. We'd be done with choosing other things over God. Now the reality is, 
sin's hold over us will never fully be broken until Jesus returns. But while we wait, it's as we look to the cross and the resurrection of Jesus that sin's grip weakens on us. Because we see that choosing other things over God is exactly why Jesus had to die for us. When we choose pornography, it's not without a cost. Our temporary pleasure comes at Jesus' pain. When we choose gossip, it's not without a cost. When we choose greed, it's not without a cost. It's just that we're choosing that Jesus should pay the cost instead of us. As we get that, as we feel it, it starts to break the hold that sin has over us as we realize just how destructive and awful sin is. When we see the love that Jesus has for us, that he'd prefer to go to the cross than let us be lost forever, it starts to break the hold that sin has over us as we want to live for the one who was willing to die for us. And when we get that this world is going to be restored, a world without the mess of sin, without any rejection of God, where there will no longer be pain or sickness or death or tears, it starts to break the hold that sin has over us as we begin to live as citizens of that coming kingdom now. We can be people who not just know about the death of Jesus and his resurrection. But we can be people who really get it and feel it and are changed by it. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we stand in awe of who you are, of your plan for this world and of what Christ has done on our behalf. And yet, Lord, the reality is that we just can't comprehend it to its full depth. Your absolute love, your complete justice and holiness, and your deep mercy. Lord, help us to keep looking to the cross and to keep looking to the resurrection to understand your plan for this world. Lord, help us to throw our allegiance in fully with Jesus. And while we wait for his return, to see the death grip of sin on us weakened and weakened. As we see that Christ has fully taken our place at the cross and is bringing about a world free of sin. Lord, we long for that day. Help us to long for it more. And Lord, help us in our hearts and lives to say, come Lord Jesus. Amen.